This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. You know, when the great Bob Grant was on the radio, he would famously say quite often, I feel like it was at least once per show, I gotta get out of here. I really gotta get out of here. And in saying that, I think he really typified the frustrations of so many of his listeners where it just seems like the planet Earth should change its name to the planet Loco or the planet Meshuggah. And you need sometimes a little bit of a break from all of the craziness that envelops the news cycle on a day-to-day basis. Every two weeks, we aim to give you just such a break as we have Cosmic Conversations. The Other Side of Midnight presents... From the spiral, to the elliptical, to the lenticular, to the irregular, to the quasars galaxies. Where are we in the cosmic evolutionary picture? Always remember to keep your eyes to the skies. The following conversations are cosmic conversations with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. That's right. Every two weeks, we turn to our go-to expert, a veteran radio and TV broadcaster and edutainer that knows a thing or two about what's happening in the sky, what's happening in space, and what's happening involved in all things that are looking up. Uh, Steve, welcome back to the program. My only uh, difficulty with you is limiting our conversation to just an hour. (laughs) Well, Frank, good morning to you and the listeners. As we go cosmic conversation once again for this exciting episode, Uh, lots of things to talk about and always a pleasure to be with you in the audience. You know, one of the things that uh, I I view as one of President Trump's greatest accomplishments and an incredibly forward thinking uh, aspect of his administration was the development of our newest branch of the military, the Space Force. And one of the things that uh, I don't think people had an appreciation for at the time that it was announced is that there are likely to be a whole bunch of incidents related to military conflict in space. And that's part of what Space Force is designed to help anyway. Uh, do I understand that we have had our first combat incident in space. What happened? What was it? Well, you're absolutely right, Frank. This is interesting. Just on Halloween day, October, well, the day around the Halloween period, October 31st for us, in the ongoing Israeli-Hamas war, an Israeli missile known as an Arrow 2 shot down a Yamani rocket, which was identified made by Iran, at this area we call the beginning of space. Now, many people say that there's two different numbers for this, but a serious scientist that talked about this a long time ago, his last name was Karma. And the Karman line is officially 62 miles above the Earth where space begins. So to make this story even more understandable, this is the first time in space history that we've had a space warfare event where a missile has actually been shot down, an aggressive missile, out into space. So this is quite interesting. 
And it's probably the, well, sad to say, the beginning of many others, because what's going on has the horrific thing going on with the Israelis and the Hamas. We're talking about this first time that uh, an object was actually shot down into outer space from the ground, though. This is interesting. This wasn't a missile fired from a satellite. And the Arrow 2 missile, this is also very interesting. But what was the intended target of this Yamani rocket made in Iran? It was an area at the very southern part of Israel known as Elat. And it's interesting to note that my own father, who was involved in contracts around the world, he actually helped build an air base there many, many years ago in the 80s. So obviously that's the story of first encounter in space where a missile has actually been shot down above that line, 62 miles above the Earth in space. You know, I didn't know uh, that about your your dad. What line of work was he in? Was he in construction? Was he in engineering? What did he do? It was a contract. He was a supervisor in construction for many years, but he, along with a lot of his friends, got the idea to work in various countries around the world. You know, they needed their expertise in construction. So he worked for many years over in Israel and also had a dual passport with Saudi Arabia, helping to build some of their air bases and some of these projects. But he did tell me, you know, it was very interesting. He did tell me about the secrecy around that area, air base that they had in Elat. And he even said then there were attacks coming from, you know, aggressors that were trying to shoot missiles and rockets and, you know, tried to invade that area. So if you take a look at the map where Israel goes all the way down, it's a very far southern tip. But it's interesting stories. But as we said, even more interesting how the space warfare realm, you know, every day it seems to be coming what uh, closer to reality. And, and there's your first example of something being shot down in space from an aggressive uh, nation which shot an Iranian-made missile, the Yemenis, from uh, Yemen, I believe. Uh, that is a great point. Let me give our phone number, by the way, if people have questions for you throughout the hour, and uh, th- th- I know that there are a lot of things to ask about. There's just been a ton of space news since the last time we, we chatted. Our number is 1-800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. By the way, if you're interested in any of the subjects we're talking about steve covers them regularly on the dr sky experience podcast all you have to do is search the dr sky experience or just go to red apple podcast network.com and search dr sky and it comes uh, right up so since we began on a military footing let me continue in that vein apparently there's now a nuclear spacecraft or as george w bush would say a nuclear spacecraft being developed by lockheed martin what do we know about this steve well, for the longest time, many nations around the world, Frank, have been trying to develop the use of reactors in spacecraft. They started off on the ground. This is another side story. In the aviation world, one of the most amazing bombers that people could ever look back in history. Maybe many of the listeners were even involved in the great B-36 bomber. It had these six big, massive propellers that were at the back, assisted by two very interesting jet pods on both sides. They called it magnesium overcast because the thing was made of all kinds of metals like magnesium. And when it flew over you, it would just give this big overcast and block out the sun. But what's interesting, even back then, there was a development that the American government, uh, the military, tried to develop a nuclear reactor on board one of those aircraft. Well, that problematic thing, it stopped very quickly because you had to have this massive cage around the pilot so they wouldn't be hit with radiation. So it's moved to the space level. And there was a project called Project Nerva that was actually started 
during the late 50s and into the 1960s in that so-called secret area, like Area 51, where they developed this rocket power that was developed by the use of nuclear power. So now, moving not from the science, you know, the science fiction realm, we find out that Lockheed Martin has a contract to develop, at least in the early stages, a nuclear rocket that can actually utilize this, uh, you know, propulsion system in space. But it's not directly coming out of the back engine as if it's firing, you know, radioactive waste. This would be the ability for the reactors to generate some sort of, and I'm keeping it kind of simple here, like steam pressure. Yeah, you thank you. It. Please keep it simple. By the for use my of, by, yeah, absolutely. By the use of something called a Stirling engine. And if you look that up, there's been developments with this process called a Stirling engine. Now, there's all kinds of propulsion rockets out there. There's xenon propulsion, which uses like electronic uh, propulsion, if you want to call it that, in the simplest way. But this isn't something that's going to happen in the next couple of years. I mean, this is all experimental. This is all on the drawing boards. But the good benefit behind that would be simply this. We could get to destinations like Mars quicker if we could use this impulse technology where these rocket engines would fire from the use of nuclear power. So stay tuned. What was science fiction, Frank, as we know, is becoming slowly and maybe even faster science reality. So that's quite exciting. What I find so exciting about the time that we're living in from a, a space explorer's perspective is because it seems like there's so much we're learning on about the future. There's so much we're learning about the present. But because of things like the James Webb Space Telescope, we're actually learning a great deal about the past as well. I'm sure 100 years people will say that that's the best time to be alive for space exploration. Sure. But this is a, certainly a pretty exciting time. Uh, one of the things that uh, I saw recently is that there may have been a second Big Bang. It seems like the more people start looking at this, exploring this, discussing it, the less likely, at least from my perspective, that the Big Bang was to have occurred. I mean, to just have something out right. of nothingness, it seems a lot less likely. So uh, putting my skepticism aside... What um, do we know about the theory involving a second Big Bang, Steve? Well, this is interesting, Frank. 13.77 billion years ago is the benchmark where we think this whole shebang started. And this infinitesimally small little dot, if you want to call it, of all known energy and matter to come, all of a sudden just took off in this expansion, which I like to say expansion instead of explosion, but now a new concept is taking center stage, and it states this, that just after the first event, as we've talked about, there may have been something called a dark Big Bang. Now, what does that entail? These are particles trillions of times the mass of those that make up normal matter. Now, this gets really complicated because nobody really understands the true nature of dark matter. So as this whole event took place, it could have been hours, it could have been months, because we don't have a measurement of time, as we on Earth call it. But these mysterious particles, what this dark matter is, it's thought to hold galactic systems together. So think of dark matter as the glue that binds things in gravity, such as rotational stability in galaxies. This is not a new theory. It's been around for quite a long time. A female astronomer named Vera Rubin was one of the first who worked on this, and they scoffed at her. And they never really wanted her to get her PhD because she was a female. How sad. But her theories have come true today. But moments, moments after that event, the first so-called Big Bang, something else happened. There was a time in the universe that had this incredible thing called cosmic inflation. 
Now we get you know all the news from the economic world say that inflation has been slowed down to what some three percent. This is a different kind of inflation. It's where the universe started to seethe atoms and start to create some sort of you know what we call today matter and stars. But this particular second big bang, theoretically, it started this whole new quantum field of dark matter. In other words, it created something that even today astronomers, if you ask anybody who's in the lead of research on this. If they're honest, they're going to say, no, we really don't understand what this is. It's some kind of conundrum in gravity. But what we need to do to search for evidence of this, or how do we search for evidence? There'd be ripples in the field of space-time. So in other words, this is another weird kind of subject matter. In the ripples of space-time, there would be these ripples as if you threw a rock into a water like a pond. We're searching for these with various instruments and spacecraft over time. So I find it fascinating because... If we could ever understand what dark matter really is, we'd have a better understanding of how this whole universe really works. And remember, the TOE, the theory of everything, is the trying, the trying, they're trying to do the combination of bringing together relativity, Einstein's relativity, special and general theory, to what we know in the world of cosmic, you know, quantum physics. So if you could ever bring that together, don't you think, Frank, that's a big task to try to have, well, here's the theory of how everything works. But that second Big Bang, this is something even more interesting. And there are many astronomers and cosmologists, to be exact. These are the people that study the so-called creation theories of the universe from a scientific standpoint, that there's a lot of argument that goes between them. It's not, in other words, it's the, the whole issue is not settled by any means. But here's a new theory. Speaking of uh, the histories of the unknown and the mysterious, What do we know about the moon? As far as I can tell, most experts finally agree that it's not made of cheese. Uh, There are some new theories about where the moon may have come from. Where are we with the thinking of the moon's history? Well, here's a new theory. I mean, a lot of people, if you look at a big map of the Earth, many people, and I remember in my grade school, people were saying, well, you know, Steve, as a student, the moon probably was birthed out of the Pacific Ocean. Well, that's really not true, as we know now today, but that was a leading contender a long time ago. So here's what we think now. Astronomers also come up with these theories, and there's facts to back it up, that some four and a half billion years ago, something may have happened where this object, another planetary object, which by the name of Thea, now who is she? She's the Greek mother of Selene, the moon goddess. This is what the name they gave it. It was a probable object about the size of Mars, which impacted the Earth. And thus, when it impacted the Earth, it did something. Evidence now shows that this great impact hypothesis that we're talking about, material from Thea may still be impacted deep into the Earth's mantle. Now, we know from geology that the Earth's core is larger than it should be, Frank. And this may account for these blobs of material that are embedded into the Earth's mantle. So if it's true, what the heck happened to this Thea object? Well, some say that most of it was either impacted into the Earth and the rest of may formed the moon that we have today as a blob of material. So, you know, the general consensus here is that the moon was probably created by an impact. Hmm. Imagine that, an object maybe the size of the planet Mars striking an object like the Earth. Well, that must have been some sight to see. But so much for the mother of the moon, the goddess of Selene, that now we talk about an object that was related to her, the Greek mother of Selene, an object called Thea. That is so interesting. 800-848-9222, if you have a question for Dr. Sky, let me begin with Al here in New York City. Hello, Al. 
Good morning, Frank. Good morning, morning Dr. Kate. I have a question about... Hi, uh, Al. Can you hear me? Hello? Yeah, you sound like you're in a little bit of a windstorm, Al, but give it a shot. Yes, yes I wanted to know about a reversal of the polar uh, ice caps. You know, it's moving, the North Pole is moving uh, hundreds of miles away, and eventually it's going to flip over as it's done in the past. Do you yes. see it coming anytime soon in the grand scheme of things? And uh, another question is, are you a pilot by any chance? No, I'm not a pilot. I'll take the first part of it, but I sit in the other seat and I fly with a lot of people. But one, Al, that I'm not going to do, I let my brother do this because he does our photo recon. If people want to check that site out, it's called photorecon.net. That's our aviation side. But the reason I don't do it, I I turned down the F-16 backseat ride. I guess I'm a big baby, but no, I'm not looking to do 8Gs. I don't do well in those amusement park rides. But going back to the serious part of your question, the first part, no, Al, not anytime soon do we expect a complete, you know, magnetic flip on this planet. It happened about 300,000 years ago. It happens more often on the sun. But right now, you're right. The poles are wandering. So if you exactly looked at this geomagnetic pole on the Earth, we see that it was obviously up in Canada. It's slowly moving over to Russia, over by Siberia. But nothing that we can tell you right now that's going to happen in any short time, meaning the lifespan of us as humans. We're probably looking, hopefully, you know, that we don't experience this anytime soon, probably thousands of years in the future. But you bet we'll keep you posted on that one. Thank you, Al. 800-848-9222 if you have a question for Dr. Sky. When we come back in a moment, there was someone who was integral to the early days of the space program that we lost this week at the age of 95. This, unlike the names uh, Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong, may not have been a household name, but I think was probably equally as important in being a space pioneer. We'll talk about it with Dr. Sky and your questions in just a minute. Three open lines if you want to jump on board. 800-848-9222. We are having some cosmic conversations with Dr. Sky. And if you give us a call, you can too. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Capri's singing a little bit about the stars. We are talking a little bit about the stars with uh, Dr. Sky, Steve Cates, who we have cosmic conversations with every two weeks in this hour. And uh, not only has he dramatically expanded my um, knowledge of the cosmos, not only has he helped me get more than quite a few Jeopardy clues right over the past three years, uh, but he really has 
uh, strengthened my interest significantly in stargazing and paying attention to what's going on there. You know, there was a, a time in my life not long ago where if there was something regarding space that didn't involve the possibility of aliens that I wasn't that interested in it. But I'm still interested in aliens, make no mistake, but the knowledge that uh, that Steve Cates provides to me and to so many of us is something that makes the un the mysterious and the very difficult to understand all of a sudden, understandable in a bite-sized format. And if you want more of this than just every two weeks, you have to check out his podcast. Please subscribe to the Dr. Sky Experience. You can also go to redapplepodcastnetwork.com and uh, li- and listen to it there. Just search the Dr. Sky Experience. Steve, I have to ask you about um, a real American hero and pioneer that we lost this week. Frank Borman, 95 years old, Air Force pilot, commander of Gemini 7 and Apollo 8. What do you know about Frank Frank Borman? What did he do that was so great? Well, it's amazing. I mean, he's the commander of the Apollo 8 mission that took off from the Earth on December 21st of 68, as we're talking about. And what's interesting, if you think about that whole legacy of Apollo 8, these were three astronauts. They were the first men to move out to leave the Earth's environment, meaning beyond that of the Earth orbit. And the short story on this, we could go on for hours because I just happened to read a book and we'll have on the Dr. Sky Experience, I'm sure, shortly, an interview with the author of a very interesting book, The Backstory of Apollo 8. This was an amazing man, just like the other astronauts on there, you know, Jim Lovell and and Bill Anders that went to the moon. Remember, this was an untested, really untested Saturn V that actually went to the moon. And there was a lot of consternation in NASA about whether they should do this because of the risk. The wives were very upset, you know, with some of the decisions that they made about sending the three astronauts, not just because it was Christmas time, but about the risks involved. But Frank Borman, this is one of the astronauts that I really never had an opportunity to ever interview. You look at his history, and we had a lot of interviews with so many of the astronauts that walked the moon. But I can think this way. If you look at Frank Borman, he was obviously a real um, amazing, one of the right stuff people, you bet. I mean, there are instances in that mission, and some of it gets a little graphic, where he and the other two astronauts are on the way to the moon. Frank gets nauseous. He actually vomits in the spacecraft in weightlessness. And I'll leave the details uh, out of this conversation. You can imagine what happens when that happens in space, when you have to capture these particles that are floating around. But the point is, they wouldn't give up. I mean, these are just people. I don't know how I could sit in those small couches in the confines of space like that. But there's an interesting side story, too. We're in the aviation world, like my brother I mentioned with PhotoRecon.net, covering air shows. And years ago, he had a P-51 Mustang that he had sold to someone. It was a good friend of ours here in Arizona. And this gentleman who bought the airplane would actually fly it over my house sometimes, not because of me. He would fly over this area where I lived in Chandler, Arizona. But the sad story about that is that gentleman who bought it He lived in an air park. It's like having these luxury homes where you come out of your garage and you have your hangar and you take off in this little airport right around your house. He came back from a a mission flying it, and he sadly crashed the airplane and died. Now, that's very sad because that aircraft was so historic, but the bigger loss was the loss of that pilot. But Frank Borman, 95 years, as we talked about, that's incredible. He was with his wife till the very end. She had suffered from the early stages of dementia. And you know what? 
he wouldn't leave her side. Isn't that love, Frank? That's incredible. He stayed with her every single day that he could and, and regretted the fact that he missed her during the Christmas time, as those other astronauts did when they did those historic <laughs> broadcasts to try to bring the world together. And Bill Anders, who really never got any uh, real credit on this, he's probably the most famous photographer in history with the Earthrise picture. And the backstory on that very quickly is he had, he had the camera and he almost missed the shot because there was a lot of complications with imagine in those days you didn't have a digital camera you had to use these Hasselblad cameras that had film in them so we were lucky we got the earth rise picture which they presented to president johnson and they were given these special medals as heroes in the astronaut world wow uh, that's some story talk about a life well lived with a lot of interesting stories oh, to uh, to share at your local tavern my goodness all right uh, 800-848-9222 a lot of people are eager to chat with you carl is uh here in manhattan hello carl hello gentlemen um i'm fascinated by what you're speaking speaking on i was just wondering if uh dr sky has any information on um uh, advanced uh, particle physics on the CERN collider, if they've come up with anything new, and um, if any of those might be uh, used in any of the technology that's buzzing about these UAPs or anything like that. Uh, I, well, I Carl, certainly... Thank you for your question. Yeah, good morning. This is fascinating. The best I can give you on this, particle colliders, we have to be very careful. And some people, even Stephen Hawking gave out this kind of warning he didn't come out and say it in, you know, big capital letters. He said it in kind of a low-key way. But what we're searching for is these God particles, which they've basically found. One's called the Higgs boson, and that's something that we could go into for hours. Just another particle that supposedly adds mass to things in the universe. We don't quite understand that. But his reason for saying that, Stephen Hawking, Carl, was that maybe, just maybe, we could be creating our own time tunnel machine if you remember mm. that series from the 1960s, which was kind of cool. I loved the show. and So many people did. I guess it was scrapped after one season, sad to say. But the point is, Carl, what we're talking about is these are things that even Stephen Hawking was concerned about. I mean, if you look at the size and breadth and depth of that big particle collider, we don't know what could happen. I mean, who knows? But uh, if it helps us answer the whole story about how this universe was created, like we were talking about these particles, like we're talking about dark matter, and dark energy. I'm all for it. Absolutely. I guess I have to have my hand behind my back and just be concerned, Carl. So good, good question. That's basically what's happening. Steve, one of the issues I brought up earlier in the week, I'm curious to get your opinion on it, since Carl brought up the UAP issue. The Pentagon's yes. top man in terms of looking after UAPs, Dr. Uh, Sean Kirkpatrick, announced that he's stepping aside. He's the head of Arrow. He's stepping aside. When David Grush, who we've talked about before, testified before Congress and yes. did that News Nation interview, uh, Sean Kirkpatrick was completely dismissive of David Grush, and he was completely dismissive of the fact that these UAPs might be aliens. Now, um, he comes out in mm -hmm. this interview with Politico last week and says, well, either these UAPs are aliens or they're some hostile actor in our backyard. Now, for a guy that was dead certain uh, a few months ago that they were not extraterrestrial to all of a sudden go to, well, they're either aliens or they're not, I thought that was a pretty significant shift in his uh, in his tone. Yes. What was your view of that, Steve? 
Well, absolutely. And again, can't we get to the bottom of this whole thing since David Grush has admitted in front of the cameras, in front of the congressional hearing, that the question posed to him two forms. Do we have, you know, artifacts from space, meaning spacecraft that are not from this world? His answer simply was yes. And do we have biologics translating that into do we have the bodies? And the answer is yes. And when you get people at that high level that are saying they're hostile actors, I mean, I think even a person in basic, you know, high school, uh, you know, science would probably say, well, wait a second. There's probably no nation on the earth that you and I know of, Frank, and the listeners, that has the ability to make 90 degree turns at these incredible speeds, which would crush any human inside there talking G-forces. So, in other words, it's like we keep getting this disinformation. The big question, like you do all the time on your show When the heck are we ever going to know what the truth is? Where are these bodies? Where are these craft? And if you go in a skiff and they're being told that as members of the congressional hearing, well, what the heck are they? Who did they hear? I mean, I'm repeating myself because it's just a frustration that I think both you and many of the people out there just tell us what the hell the truth of the matter is here. Absolutely. Uh, couldn't agree with you more. 800-848-9222. If you have a question for Dr. Sky, let me say hello to Joan here in New York. Hello, Joan. Oh, hi. Thank you, Frank. Uh, hi, Steve. Um, I'm wondering what you know about this news report I heard about a week ago. They seem to have discovered a new star. They're calling it a baby sun because they say it's only 100,000 years old, which is very young. And they said that um, they detected it with with infrared light uh, from the Webb telescope. And they say that in many, many million, it's about 8%, I think they said one-eighth or or 8% the size of our sun. That's why they're calling it a baby, also because it's so young. And that in many millions of years, it will be the size of our sun. So I don't know how they know that or how that will happen. What, What do you know about this, this baby sun? Well, here's an addition, Joan. Very good question, and good morning to you. Here we go. The James Webb sees in the infrared primarily, so I'm not surprised that it's detected stellar evolution. If you look at a place like the Orion Nebula, people out there who are not familiar with it, just Google this and take a look at these images there on Google Images. It's a birthplace, Joan, of stars. So what they're seeing is, just repeating what you said, is accurate. They're seeing something like a protostar, as I call it, early in evolution, And we haven't seen this before, and here's two reasons why. One, we never had a telescope as advanced as the James Webb to peer into the infrared. And many of these objects are lined up inside these clusters of, you know, galaxies and things and star fields that have so much gas and dust around it, thus preventing us. It's like trying to see something on the other side through thunderstorm clouds. You can't see the other side until you go through it. But I'm fascinated by it, and it gives us a better understanding of how stars are really created And, Joan, the last part of this that I was always confused in school, and I'm sure many people will, my professor always told me that stars, Steve, are created by gas and dust spinning in a circle, and over billions of years, gravity forces pressure on them, so they start the fields and powers of nuclear fusion. Think about that, Joan and Frank. That's almost like, you know, wishful thinking. But the good news in space is time, they have all the time in the world to do it. That's exactly the process. We'll be talking more about that, Joan, about the evolution of these protostars, and they've definitely found one. 
Steve, talking about technology, technological advancements, one of the three companies that has been dominating this conversation, maybe more than the other two, has been SpaceX, the Elon Musk company, Mm -hmm. as if he wasn't busy enough um, tweeting, uh, you know, inflammatory things on Twitter and uh, solving the electrical vehicle needs of the world. He is um, quite busy when it comes to SpaceX. What's going on with the launch of the SpaceX Starship? Well, here we go. Space fans, here we go. This is exciting. Not since April 20th when we had the first launch of this particular massive rocket. By the way, if you're just tuning in, this is the most powerful rocket ever launched on Earth. Allegedly, 16 million pounds of thrust may be ramping someday up to 20 million pounds of thrust. The latest forecast is, I don't have the exact time, maybe you see it as it comes through the Internet now, but as of the last time I checked, Friday the 17th is the next launch window. And if this happens, this is quite interesting. What they've done, they've made so many changes to this rocket in order to pass FAA certification, the EPA, they're all involved because the last one they had, Frank, had disastrous results. You know, it's like having your patio done in concrete and then having a massive destructive force like a rocket like this with these 33 Raptor engines just tearing up the concrete, flying chunks to your neighbor, you know, and they're destroying their house. They've now made these changes. And one of the big changes is right there at the bottom of the base of this rocket. Imagine 33 Raptor engines fueled by liquid oxygen and liquid methane. They all have to fire in synchronization. So now what they're going to do, they have this giant flame pit with a water ablation system. That sounds real fancy. The Apollo Saturn V had it. Look at any launches of Apollo Saturn Vs. They had this big water pit where it just ablated some of the, you know, intense heat of the rocket. So this time they're going to start the engine at a three second to zero go instead of the eight seconds because they started those engines at eight seconds instead of three seconds. And then the thing, the spacecraft, this massive 400-foot-tall rocket, it has to pass something called Max-Q. This is where the maximum pressure is on that airframe or that rocket frame. That occurs 52 seconds into flight. So then there's another milestone they have to pass. Remember, this is a two-stage rocket, a massive booster. And by the way, Frank, you know what has to happen to the booster. After it separates, it has to do a turn. This is the science fiction stuff, right? And then it has to have the ability to come back down to Earth, not like the first stages of the Saturn V that mm. just splashed into the ocean. Land on or near, excuse me, not on, but near the big launch pad, the, I mean, the, the big tower. And then as it comes through this grappling hook, like a vice grip, it has to fit right in there so that the two pinchers of metal will grab it. But they have another thing, two minutes and 30 seconds into the flight. They call it Miko. And the old referring was main engine cutoff. But now that you got 33 Raptor engines, they changed the name to most engines cutoff. So if this happens, the Starship spacecraft, which is the upper stage, is hopefully going to get into orbit and do kind of like a halfway around the world thing and supposedly splash down in the ocean near Hawaii. So let's keep our fingers crossed. It should be an exciting. But here's the last thing I didn't mention. Last time when they pushed the destruct button, it didn't work right away. So they had to improve on that. So you don't want that errant rocket flying around. Even if it goes into the Gulf of Mexico, it's still, you know, a dangerous thing. If it comes down and hits anything, it shouldn't go down and explode. So we'll see. So good luck, 
uh, you know, Starship and SpaceX. Absolutely. We see we will. And we have two open lines if you have a question. 800-848-9222. In a moment, there's a cosmic trash problem. Two astronauts lost a tool bag outside the International Space Station this month. What else is floating around out there? Why can't they just get a garbage pail like everybody else seems to have? We'll explore it with Dr. Sky as part of our Cosmic Conversation straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Side at midnight with Frank Morano. Let's build a stairway to the stars and climb that stairway to the stars with love beside us. To fill the night with the song We'll hear the sound of violins Out yonder where the blue begins The moon will guide us As we go drifting along Can't we sail away the great Ella Fitzgerald singing about the stars. If you ever want to know what kind of music we're playing on the program, uh, just join our Facebook group. Just go onto Facebook and search Morano, M-O-R-A-N-O, Radio Fans and Haters. That's uh, M-O-R-A-N-O, Radio Fans and Haters. And uh, you can not only know what kind of music we're playing on this program, but you can contribute your two cents to any of the subjects we're talking about, including the ones that we have covered this hour with Dr. Sky. If you're interested in the subjects that uh, that we've covered this hour and you want to hear more, you're going to want to listen to the Dr. Sky Experience. It's a terrific podcast, which covers a lot more than just space. There's a lot of great stories on there. There's a lot of great interviews on there. And you can get it on any podcast app. Just, uh, just you know, search the Doctor Sky Experience or go to redapplepodcastnetwork.com. Steve, as I alluded to before the break, uh, we've got a problem with with trash. Uh, we've got a problem with uh, space junk. Uh, what's going on? I know these uh, these astronauts have left their their tools out there outside the International Space Station, but why is it so difficult for people in space to keep a hold of their tools and other things? Well, this is a great question. And years ago, Frank, I was close to an astronaut named Story Musgrave. And who's he? He's one of these genius astronauts that had like four PhDs and six master's degrees. His mission was to go up and change and fix the mirror on the Hubble Space Telescope. It had a myopic problem. So I talked to him and we were sitting there having numerous gin and tonics. So I got this out of him. I said, did you ever lose any tools or anything like that? And he said, you know, he said, occasionally a couple of bolts and nuts would fly away from me. And he go, I go, wow, isn't that dangerous in space? And he said, well, we tried not to, uh, to do that too often. But currently, we find out that two astronauts on this EVA outside the ISS, they're working to replace a bearing on one of the solar arrays out there. 
And lo and behold, the two astronauts, they lost a tool bag. So this is more than just a couple of nuts and bolts. So what's interesting is NORAD and ground controllers have the ability to track little centimeter-sized objects in space. So guess what? Now people who live in super dark areas can actually, if they watch the space station go across the sky, you need a dark sky for this in binoculars, about a minute ahead of the space station would be this little faint, almost you couldn't even see the star with your naked eye. Hmm. You have to look at binoculars. You'd see the tool bag going. But I just wonder if those tools have a lifetime warranty. So maybe <laughs> we should find out what kind of tools they were. But seriously, space junk is a problem. Now, there's larger objects in space like that. There's gloves floating around out there. There's other trash that other countries, without attacking other countries, we can imagine who's doing this. You know, they, there have been intentional shootdowns of satellites just to see if they could hit the target like it was a shooting range and a shooting gallery. Well, let's not do that because you create so many you know, debris fields that actually traveling 17,000 miles an hour can cause catastrophic damage. Even a tiny little millimeter-sized object could cause problematic things to astronauts in their spacesuits. So the rest is history. So if people go out and see the space station, and anyone claims to see something ahead of it by a minute in the same orbital path, you might have seen a tool bag in space. How amazing. Amazing indeed. 800-848-9222. Robert's in Suffolk. Robert, you're on with Dr. Sky. Hi, Stephen Frank. Uh, Astrophotography. Yeah, astrophotography. Uh, Is there a minimum size telescope you'd recommend? And is there a uh, difference for the amateur between digital, which I'm not sure can be done, Mm -hmm. and uh, film photography? Well, Robert, everything is digital now. I mean, I just use an iPhone 14. I use one of those that's out there with a terabyte. I order it with a terabyte for this following reason. That camera alone, even in dark skies, I'm picking up so many things. I'm sure many people out there were say, wow, you know, Steve, Dr. Sky, we do this all the time. But in order to do some serious astrophotography, this is what you probably need. You'll have to invest in a fairly decent-sized telescope. And when I talk about diameters in the short time we have, probably something at least six inch to eight inches if, if it's a mirror on a telescope. And you want to have the ability for that telescope tripod to have the ability to track the sky. That's a whole other subject. In other words, so instead of when you look through it, in three minutes it doesn't drift away because of the Earth's rotation. But basic images. I mean, I'm getting great little images. Get a look of this. Just holding my iPhone to the telescope, we get great moon pictures. And everybody who comes to one of our Dr. Sky public events here, We ask them if they have a phone. Who doesn't have a phone? And I say to them, can I take this camera, I mean, this phone, and I hold it up in a way that they get a picture. And I say, well, you can tell everybody you took the picture, whatever. But the point is, Robert, you can do a lot, even just with an iPhone. But more serious stuff would have to be the telescope and cameras. But you use digital because the old film cameras are certainly not going to give you the image quality that you'll get quickly from digital. Steve, you talk about the things you're seeing with your iPhone or with a telescope. What is on the horizon, literally and figuratively, in the uh, in the near or even the long term that people can look forward to seeing? What should people keep their eyes peeled for? Well, the long term is this. 146 days only exist till the next big total solar eclipse. We'll talk about that, I'm sure. And Maybe we can do something here with the radio station to even promote that more because it actually comes to the state of New York. I got my glasses. Yeah. Hey, I'm ready for you, my brother. 
So that's going to happen. Hard to believe a month ago, almost in a day, was that annular eclipse. But right now, the moon was new on the 13th. So if you look into the southwest, you'll see this beautiful crescent moon with that strange ghostly image to the left of the lit part of the moon. And that's called Earthshine. And it was Leonardo da Vinci that actually first came up with what the answer to that was. Earthshine meaning simply this. The Earth has the opposite phase of what you see the moon when you see the crescent moon. So the Earth would be a little less than full, and the light of the moon is shining to create that ghostly image. So if you were standing on that part of that moon that you see as the ghost area, you would see a gigantic, almost nearly full Earth in the lunar sky. But here we go. Saturn in the south, telescope views give the rings. Jupiter, as you can't miss it, the big bright object in the east, the sunset. Magnificent in the telescope. Binoculars, you can see the basic four moons if you hold them steady. Venus in the early morning sky. The planet that we say professionally and pronounce it properly is Uranus. It came to opposition on the 13th, meaning it rises in the sky. Binoculars and telescopes, it's about 1.7 million miles, excuse me, 1.7 billion miles away from the Earth. A Leonid meteor shower peaks as we move into early Saturday morning. If you're out there in dark skies, look to the east just before sunrise, 3 a.m. to sunrise. You may get to see some of those fast-moving meteors. Fascinating. And then a full moon, Frank, on the 27th, the beautiful full hunter's moon. Fascinating stuff. What is a hunter's moon? Well, they're named after Native American tribes have named these different moons. We have the harvest moon because of the harvest. We have the hunter's moon because in many of the Native American indigenous cultures, it was a time for hunting during that season to prepare for the long winter in which food was scarce and you had to go out and literally go, you know, stockpile whatever you could find to endure through the winter. The most prolific one is the full cold moon or the long night moon that we get in December. Because if you look at the way the sky is, you have the winter solstice in December by around the 20th, 21st, the shortest of days, which means the opposite effect would happen when that moon rises and is full in December it takes the path that the sun takes in the summer, the opposite six-month season, thus the name the Long Night Moon. Some of the other great names, I mean, there's so many names, not just from Native American cultures, but if you go around the world, they all have significance from China, the Middle Eastern nations. They have all these beautiful, symbolic, and very beautiful stories about the moon, as we talked about before, with Thea, maybe the actual you know, one way that we have the moon come about by an impact by an object, Bothea, the size of Mars, you know, hitting in, hitting into the Earth and pushing this blob, blob of material, which we call the moon. Just fascinating stuff, Frank, always uh, up in the sky. Absolutely. All right, Joe in Queens has been patiently holding. Hi, Joe. Yeah, hi, Steve. A couple of quick questions. One is... Yeah, the Bermuda Triangle, you know, it's supposedly the point of the triangle is Miami, but it extends all the way down to, say, Puerto Rico. Is that somewhat mm -hmm. of myth? I mean, it's bound to be in such a large area, uh, you know, things go wrong. And then extreme daily temperature rises, uh, supposedly like 12 degrees Fahrenheit over the average daily temperature rise. Do you see anything with that as a phenomenon as well? Not really. I mean, at this point, I mean, some people may take me to task. I'm not saying I don't have any concerns about the climate change concept, but I think we need more in, you know, research on that because all weather comes from the sun. We may not understand all the dynamics. It's not just an 11-year solar cycle. It's much deeper. But going back to the first part, Joe, what you were talking about, 
you know, this triangle that's in the ocean. There's actually some truth to something that's in the area just off the coast of Brazil. It's called the South Atlantic Anomaly. It's a strange change in gravity. Spacecraft know this when they go over it. It's a region, gentlemen, that is kind of bizarre. So if you're in a spacecraft, it has a different tug to it, or it changes the gravity field a little bit. Why? Because there's either a massive bulge of material underneath the Earth's mantle that's causing a change in what we consider to be compass, maybe not just compass directions, but the stress and pull of gravity on the Earth. So who knows what the whole concept of the Bermuda Triangle may be. It may also be another yet, you know, totally not researched area where gravitational anomalies exist on the Earth from what's below the surface. Fascinating stuff. Uh, Steve, it's probably unfair of me to bring this up when we only have 90 seconds for you to answer the question, but I'm going to go ahead and do that anyway. Mouse embryos just grew in space. Uh, For the first time, astronauts have successfully developed mouse embryos while on board the International Space Station. A lot of people wondering, does this mean that human embryos could be developed in space someday soon. Absolutely. And it's, again, kudos to the people that are developing this from the scientific side. Ethically, again, that's another question when we talk about humans. But the, the, the beat goes on. I mean, a lot of things, we don't talk about the medical benefits from space. You know, we research different ways to do surgeries, microgravity, and things like that. Various pharmaceuticals developed to help people. Let's hope that that tradition continues as we move to the next edition of our cosmic conversations enjoy it greatly friend steve i will see you in two weeks it is always a treat to talk with you i uh, hope people check out the dr sky experience thanks a lot and happy thanksgiving to all absolutely that's something everybody can agree upon no matter your view of what's going on in the cosmos meantime keep reaching for the stars but keep your feet on the ground